Bibles and let's go to 1 Peter chapter number 1 and then we're going to go to Leviticus chapter 17. So tonight I want to teach on the purpose and the power of the blood of Jesus and maybe we can give you some perspectives that you hadn't thought about before, and if you have, just confirm in your heart some things you've already known. So First Peter chapter number 1, um, let's begin with verse 18, and I'll read 18 through 20. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain tradition or vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Now, verse 19, if you just look at that first sentence, it talks about the precious blood of Christ. I'm not teaching out of Peter, but I do want to emphasize that sentence regarding the blood of Jesus. But then let's go now to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17. Now, Janessa, you may have to help Jerica find Leviticus 17. Verse number 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Then let's now look at verse 10. Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So obviously any animal, animal that was <clears throat> excuse me, strangled, the children of Israel couldn't eat because... God said the life of that body of flesh was in that blood, which is why the blood had to be drained from it in order for it to be edible for them at a later time. But as we look at the purpose and the power of the blood, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful to have this opportunity to fellowship. So now as we look into the word, we need you to speak to all of our hearts. I pray that you would give them ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly, to clarify whatever may be complex, but more than anything else, help us to continue to fall in love again and again with our Savior, Jesus Christ. His name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Since the beginning of time, people have tried to figure out different ways to deal with the effects of sin. And by that, I mean guilt, shame, and condemnation. Ever since man's first transgression, people have experienced that. And you remember then, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he made it very plain to them they could eat of every tree of the garden but one. Now, if you've ever looked at a map in the back of the Bible and seen the little scale that has the little ruler with the the, uh, the little miles and everything like that, then you know the Garden of Eden was somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 miles in circumference. So it was a big place. And with all of those trees that were in that garden, God obviously had to differentiate the one tree he didn't want them to eat from from all the other trees. Otherwise, they would have wandered around for hundreds of miles and, and, and forgot which one it was. So God did what he needed to do to make sure they knew to avoid it. But the scripture says that the serpent came along, deceived Eve. Eve gave the fruit to her husband, who, like his wife, willingly entered into the transgression, eating the fruit. And the Bible says immediately their eyes were opened and they recognized they were in the nude. 
And so they, they had a day where the Lord was walking through the garden, and the Bible says they hid from his presence. Now, because of the nakedness, because of the shame, the Bible says they sold fig leaves. How in the world did they learn how to stitch? You know, but they sold fig leaves and put all of that together and covered up the bare parts of their body where they felt ashamed. And then when the Lord came through the garden, of course, then they hid, as the scripture says, amongst the trees or there in the bushes. The Lord said, Adam, where are you? I've told you before, God doesn't ask questions because he's looking for information. He already knows everything he needs to know. He asks questions because he's trying to help us locate ourselves inside or outside of his will. God knew by the fact that they were hiding that they had transgressed his commandment. He knew that. And when he walked to where they were, he knew exactly where they were. In the same way that you know where your kids and grandkids are when you are playing with them around the house and they say, let's play hide and seek. And then you you can hear them scurrying about trying to get behind a chair or get behind some kind of a couch. And then you walk right to where they are and you say, I think I know where you are. Well, you walked in the vicinity because you knew where they were. That's exactly what God did. He went right to the bushes where they were hiding and said, Adam, where are you? And then, of course, God had to speak to them about their sin. Their sin was so bad that the Lord made the decision that they had to leave the garden. But before they left the garden, Genesis chapter 3 says, the Lord made for them coats of skins to cover their, cover them their shame, cover that, that nakedness. Well, the Hebrew word for coats is the same one that we have for the coat that Joseph wore that his dad made for him. The same word for skins is related to the kind of skin tent that was made for the tabernacle, badger skins. It was animal skins. So the way that God covered their sin was in type or in reality, Animals had to lose their lives in order for their skins to be used to cover their nakedness and their shame. And then they were expelled from the garden. I mean, God didn't cover them and let them stay in the garden. So that shows you that sometimes with the decisions that we make, when our decisions are wrong, we still have to live with the consequences of our decisions. We have to live the rest of our days with the effects of our bad decisions or good decisions. But let's suppose then, let's suppose once they were expelled from the garden and now they have to walk on this earth that God has cursed. He told them they've got to till the soil and everything in the sweat of their brow. Let's suppose they would have got out there and they said, you know, what God has given us, these these animal skins, this is nice. But you know what? I really prefer the fig leaves that we had back when we were in the garden. And then imagine if, if they would have dispensed with the coats of skins and then went back to the works of their hands. Now, the reason I emphasize that is because from Genesis chapter three, right on up to Jesus Christ, all of the Old Testament is about that. It's about people preferring their own method and scheme of dealing with guilt and sin and shame rather than preferring God's plan, which was an atonement made by the sacrifice of animals. And I'm telling you, it goes from fig leaves and gets worse and worse as you move through Scripture. With Adam and Eve, you have the first time where people felt fear. The first time where they experienced shame. The first time they wanted to run from the presence of God. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we have Cain murdering his brother. And then we also have the circumstances where a generation arose where the Lord said, I repent that I even made man. He was unhappy because of the kinds of wickedness that was in the earth. The Bible says violence covered the earth. The mind of man was was pretty much evil and uh, wickedly inclined. And it got so bad that the scripture teaches in 2 Kings 17 that the people started offering their children, their sons and daughters, as human sacrifices. Why would people do that? Because they didn't want to obey God. See, 
They were involved with enchantments, divinations, witchcraft, and the Lord made it very plain. He did not want them involved with that. Well, people do that today. God has prescribed for us that there can be no atonement for sin without the shedding of blood. That's what it says in Hebrews. And from the days of Seth, when people began to call upon the name of the Lord, animal sacrifices certainly were offered up unto the Lord. This is one of the reasons Cain killed his brother Abel. And it's the shedding of blood that, he, that the Lord says he finds acceptable. Well, you ask the question, why would animals need to be sacrificed? And why would their blood be acceptable to God? Because all of us are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And animals are the only uh, creation that with blood flowing through their body that God would find acceptable. Because a bullock, a goat, isn't guilty of sin. Animals don't blush. They don't know what it is to be embarrassed. They don't transgress. So when the Lord gave the command that animals would be sacrificed, their blood was the closest thing he could use that would be perfect. And in every generation, they offered animal sacrifices for the shedding of blood. And that's a lot of blood that had to be sacrificed for man's sin. A whole lot of blood. Now you're in Leviticus 17, but notice chapter 16. I want us to work on the word atonement. And I want to show you that the word atonement also has to do with reconciling. So Leviticus 16, verse 20, when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So let me explain what's taking place. Leviticus 16 says that the priest, when he got up to deal with the atonement for Israel's sins, he had to take a bullock and a ram, go up to the outer court of the tabernacle where there was a big, huge door. And inside that enclosure, there was a big, huge tent that had two rooms. But he had to come to the door of the outer court, tie up the animals, walk into the tent, take off the garments he was wearing, bathe himself completely, and then put on some beautiful white shining breeches or undergarments. And then he had to put on a white overgarment, and then he had to put on a white cap. And once he put on all of that white linen garment, then he had to go back out there to the animals, take the bullock, take its life, catch the blood in a pot. And once he did that, then he and the other priest would take the bullock, drag it inside up on some tables and start cutting it up so that they can lay portions of it on the altar of fire so that they could burn it and each piece could be consumed. They'd keep the fat and they'd keep the entrails or the innards because later that'll be burned outside of the camp. Now, here, here is what I'm, I'm trying to get at with this. If, if he's dressed in all white and he's got to go dress that meat the same way you would dress a deer or something else, do you think it would be possible to stay clean in all of that? Oh, no. I mean, you know, if, if you, you've been in some of your good clothes before, your children been in some of their good clothes, and then you go to a restaurant or you sit down at a table at home and somebody brings a plate of spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you putting on your you putting telling your son, OK, tuck that napkin in right here, put one on your lap and they've got napkins all over the place. And I mean, then your son or daughter starts reaching in for the spaghetti noodles and they, they're going slow because they don't want the stuff splashing. Then, you know, the noodles start going in every direction. And pretty soon you got dots all over the place. So if it's that hard to stay clean when you're eating a meal, how difficult would it be if you're having to cut up the legs and you're having to cut up the body parts so that you can put a leg here and a shoulder here? Because Leviticus chapter one says the offering has to be laid in order upon the altar. I couldn't just get it up there in one piece, had to cut it in different pieces. Well, this is what Christ did for us. 
Here was a man that was without sin, who knew no sin, but yet became our sin, climbed up on the cross, died for us. Blood was shed all over his body, and he had never did anything wrong, ever. But yet he experienced all of that. He endured all of that because of my sin and because of yours. So that's the kind of high priest that we have. Now, he did that in order to reconcile us to God. So Leviticus 16.20, as you can see, the priest was reconciling the holy place. The, the sanctuary and all the priests in his family, these things had to be sprinkled with blood so that all of this could be reconciled to God. Every year this had to take place. And reconciliation means that there are two parties that may be estranged. They may not even be talking. And reconciliation brings them back into some kind of unity and peace. And as long as the priest ministered, the children of Israel could have fellowship with God and God could have fellowship with them. So 9 a.m., 3 p.m., there had to be offerings offered. I wonder how many animals lost their lives during these thousands of years. You start from Cain going right on up to Moses. Thousands of animals. From Moses to the coming of Jesus Christ, 1,500 years. It's a lot of animals. From Moses' time to Jesus' time, that's, you've got to do it twice a day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m. And then for the festivals, you read Kings, look at the dedication of the temple. You can see that with King Solomon, I think they offered nearly 100,000 animals for the dedication. That's a lot of blood for a lot of sin. See, for a lot of sin. Jesus, he comes along and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, there are people who will read these stories in the Bible and they'll say something like this. I just can't believe in the Old Testament because I don't like the idea of animals having to die for our sins and someone having to die in our place. Well, it really doesn't matter whether you like it or not. You didn't write the Bible. The book was written before you were born, and I mean, long after you're dead and gone, but turned back to dust, we're still going to be reading the book, and the book is going to say the exact same thing. You may not like, or somebody may not like, the fact that Jesus climbed up on the cross and died vicariously for us as a substitutionary sacrifice, but I'm grateful that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for me so that I don't have to die for my sins, you see? So according to verse 20, then, there's reconciliation. I want to add to that, that in Ephesians 1, we are told that we're redeemed through his blood so that we can be holy, blameless, and accepted in the beloved. Now, if there's one thing I do know about the power of reconciliation, it is that Everybody wants to be accepted. Nobody wants to be rejected. Nobody likes being rejected. Why is our suicide rate, attempted suicide rate so high? People don't feel accepted, you know. And why do we have so many cliques and problems amongst young people and adults? Everybody's looking for a group to fit into. People want some kind of acceptance. But then when you find out that God is saying to you and to me, you are accepted by me. You're accepted in the beloved. And when you have contact with him, you have a relationship with him and you can find your dignity and your self-esteem in him. You don't have to try to find it in some man or some woman or a family or anybody. Because of your relationship with God. No one can provide for you what God is able to provide for you. So he reconciles. When people are not getting along, then God works to make everything okay. Uh, in Leviticus 16, notice now uh, verse 30. Uh, we've heard before that the atonement is a covering. But I want you also to see that the atonement is a cleansing Leviticus 16, verse 30, For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So, clean. Now, this sacrifice in the Old Testament was what each Israelite needed 
in order to boldly and confidently approach God. It's the blood of Jesus that all of us need to be able to confidently come into the presence of God and pray. You've heard people say before, I don't want to pray because I don't feel worthy of praying. Well, it's not about how you feel. If you're a Christian and your sins have been washed by the blood of Jesus, you can pray because you've been cleansed. And some people just, you know, they just feel bad about themselves anyhow. But the blood is what gives us the ability to enter into the presence of God. And the blood cleanses us in a way that we cannot cleanse ourselves. So people are always trying to deal with the effects of how they feel guilty and, and, and condemned and sinful. You've seen how if a lady gets raped, uh, uh, sometimes a lady will be in the shower for, for hours and they're just trying to rub, scrub herself and wash herself. She just wants the feeling of it to come off. You see how she was treated, mistreated, abused by this person or that person. But see, natural water cannot do what the blood can do. The blood is able to take a person's conscience and cleanse it totally when they can place it all at the foot of the cross and realize that what Jesus accomplished then, he can accomplish again. He cleanses us from sin. So Revelation chapter 1 says, Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Just like an agitator in a washing machine doing like this, then that's, that's how that blood operates in your life and it operates in my life. There's nothing that has taken place in your life that the blood of Jesus cannot handle. And when you commit it all to him, you'll find that he is able to redeem and he is able to cleanse. And I think we all like the, the cleansing factor. So verse number 30 again. That you may be clean. Everybody say the word clean. Clean. See, we all like that. You, if you want to be without spot, without blemish, go to the Lord when you're guilty or wrong and say, Father, forgive me. You'll be cleansed. And then believe that the blood of Jesus cleanses you just like the children of Israel had to believe that what the priests were doing for them up in the tabernacle was atoning and cleansing them of their sin. Believe that. And, and if you do, you won't struggle with the guilt and condemnation that so many people struggle with. They say, well, I just, I just feel so bad about myself. I can't believe God would forgive me, so I can't forgive myself. Well, you need a lesson on the blood. And when you learn that Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice for you, then you can be free. So cleansing. But, but then also the blood provides for us Redemption. Now, redemption can be an exchange of commodities of equal value. Uh, amongst the ancient Greeks, and we'll, but we'll use American money, if, if, if you had two dimes and a nickel, and somebody over here had a solid quarter, then you'd be able to exchange. Still of equal value, but still the same amount of money in the whole process of that exchange. Still some form of redemption. We, we regularly think of redemption as when you see uh, the men, you know, in the family who are the, the really big savers. When they go to the, the, the stores, the grocery stores and stuff on triple coupon day, you know, because you know the men do that a lot better than some of the ladies, I presume. And so the guys are sitting there, they're cutting out coupons. And they're going to go in there and stand in line, a whole line of people, 30 people behind them, and they pull out a bag of coupons and they're, Triple coupon. See, they're, they're redeeming something. They are giving something, and they want something in exchange. So Jesus died on the cross to redeem us. He wanted something in exchange for what he did by sacrificing his life. He doesn't want our money. He doesn't want our house, but he does want our heart. See, A yielded heart, a surrendered heart and mind that belongs to the Lord. But there's also a, a, a way of looking at redemption that's different than normally how people would preach, but certainly the ancient Israelites thought this way. When Jesus was born, the Bible says Simeon came and caught him, or lifted him up in the temple. 
And it says that Simeon said, Lord, now I am ready to go. And then it says he waited for the consolation of Israel. And then it says Anna saw that same baby, the prophetess. And it says Anna made that statement or they made the statement about Anna that she preached around Jerusalem to those who looked for redemption. And then, of course, when Jesus died on the cross, Mark uh, 1543 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, when they'd taken him down off the cross, it said Joseph waited for the kingdom of God. Then in the book of Acts, chapter number one, I believe verse five, going into verse six, it tells where they asked Jesus the question when he's getting ready to ascend to heaven. They asked, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? At this time. So another definition or aspect of redemption that we don't want to forget that they believed in. They thought that redemption was going to be the release of Israel from the Roman powers grip. Liberty, freedom. And that's what redemption is for us. God set us free from the power of sin so that sin is no longer your master and you have the authority and the power through the blood to recognize that you are free. So the Bible says, reckon yourselves dead unto sin. There's no addiction. There's no bad habit that's more powerful than the blood of Jesus. None. None more powerful. And if you if you understand that, then you realize when I committed my heart and my life to God and I accepted Christ as my savior, I literally relinquished property rights over this body, which is now his temple. It belongs to him and he can do whatever he wants to with this body. He can feed it. He can starve it. He can keep it home. He can send it to Africa if he wants to. It belongs to him. You are redeemed. You no longer belong to yourself. The beauty of that is that when we witness to people now, we can share with them, you don't have to be bitter. You can be better. You don't have to be bound by offense and unforgiveness. I think I've told you this story before, but it, it, it begs repeating. One time there was a, a, a young lady who had a, a, a mom who was shacked up with a guy, and this guy was abusing the teenage girl. And so they went to another church, but she told her mom her mom wouldn't believe her because her mom didn't want to get rid of the guy. And as happens oftentimes with Tiffany and me, people at other churches end up calling us because they don't want to talk to their pastor because they don't want to know in the church or because their pastor didn't believe in the power of God. So they set up an appointment. They brought this little gal to our home, and we asked what happened. So she walks us through everything that happened. And, of course, it's a sad time. She's sad, teary-eyed, and, I mean, our hearts are broken. Listen to all of this and everything. And when, when it's all over, I know that after, after we hear all the, the tears and we see all the tears and we go through all these emotions, now we got to come back to what the Bible says. See? So I knew she was a believer. And so I said to her, I want to I want to tell you a story, you know, because she was talking about how hard it is to forgive. So I'm going to tell you a story. I said there was a, a gentleman in the Bible. He never bothered anybody, never caused anybody any problem, never had to apologize for anything he ever did. But. People slandered him, they lied on him, and he ended up going through some terrible situations where one trial after another, then eventually he ended up crucified. Just, just one person after another called him names, and because of the accumulation of the lying witnesses against him, he's hanging up there on the cross. But I said, hanging there on the cross with people sitting there on the ground watching him and with Roman soldiers gambling for the little garments that he had and with him exposed and ashamed and condemned by the Roman people and folks walking by mocking him, he hung up there on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So I said, so you as a Christian, you've been abused. It's terrible, but you know what? You're still going to have to forgive because you are a Christian. See, You're going to have to forgive. 
Because if you don't forgive, you're going to end up with ulcers. It's going to affect you physically. That bitterness, that offense is going to be inside of you. It's just going to absolutely destroy you until you're a Christian. Now, somebody else, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or somebody might come along and say something like this. Well, they can't forgive because they've just gone through that. No, it's not a problem of ability. If they're a Christian, they can forgive. It's not a problem of ability. It's a matter of the will. They won't forgive. That's the problem. And somebody has to come to a point where they look at the cross, look at themselves, and realize it's no longer about my emotions, my feelings, how bad I was treated. Because of what you did, God, I'm going to have to forgive. See? Yeah. That's, that's the blood, folks. That's the blood. And the, a person who forgives is free. It's free. The man or woman who won't forgive, the person that you are grudge-bearing against, that person controls your life. And I can prove it. Anytime you walk into the room where that person is, you get so angry and upset, you turn and walk out. They control you. You walk into that room, you sit down, and you huff and puff. You just decide, I'm not going to say anything to them, and I'm going to make them mad. They don't even care. You're the, you're the one troubled and disturbed and the Bible talks about a root of bitterness springing up and troubling you. Troubled people tend to trouble everybody else. Does that make sense? Now, we all have the one person in our family who, when we have the family reunion, we're hoping doesn't show up. <laughs> we all have that one or two that... That one person, you're, you're hoping they've got a sore throat and they just decide they're not going to show up. Because invariably, when they come, if they're sitting off in a corner with seven or, or eight cousins or second cousins or uncles and aunts, there's going to be trouble. And if they start drinking, there's going to be trouble. And so a lot of times people just don't want them around. But a lot of people are trying to drink away their sorrows because they're troubled. And troubled people tend to trouble everybody else. And you come on the scene and you have a little bit of peace and then they're not happy with that. And they're determined that even though you are at peace with God and at peace with the family and at peace with yourself, they're going to disturb as much peace as they can. Yeah. But the blood makes it possible for us to follow peace with all men, without which no man shall see the Lord. See? Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So it's possible to be at peace and when you're redeemed and you know that you're forgiven, you don't have to get upset when you run into people that you used to run with and you did some bad things with because you know now it's under the blood. It's under the blood. Yeah. You run into somebody from high school or somebody that you used to work with, and then they get to laughing and patting you on the back and say, oh, do you remember that time we did such and such? You say, oh, yeah, I remember that. That man's dead, though. Yeah, he's dead. Don't do that anymore. No, because I, I, I can assure you there are a whole lot of people from my past I don't ever want to see again. <laughs> I can assure you don't want to see them at all. But, but if I did see them, then I have to let them know. Not the same person. And when I go home to Cleveland and I run into people that I hadn't seen in 30, 35 years, and they'll say something like, oh, my goodness, man, we, we heard you're preaching the gospel now. You're way out somewhere in, where are you at, in Dakotas or somewhere like that? They'll say, I say oh, yeah. I say, I'm out there. Do you remember that time when we did so-and-so? Oh, yeah, I remember that, but he's dead. He's dead. We don't live like that no more. No, no, we don't live like that. So the blood comes along and cleanses us and sets us free. Now, let's go back to Leviticus 17. Let's consider something a little bit different now. Okay. Leviticus 17. Again, the life of the flesh is in the blood. God breathed in the human body. The heart started beating. This inanimate thing became animated and it's the blood that works in the body that ensures that there's some kind of manifestation of life now, blood illustrates life and it's at this point we we've got to consider how god made this human body now, your bone marrow 
produces stem cells. Those are the building blocks of the blood system. And those stem cells send signals throughout the body to let it know when red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets need to be manifested in a greater number. The beauty of the blood is it transmits nutrients and vitamins and everything throughout the body. It never gives more or less than is needed to each individual cell. It takes oxygen and it carries it throughout the body. So your blood cycles through your body every 30 to 45 seconds, less than a minute, just, just going, going through your body. But the oxygen, when it's going into your body, when it comes into contact with different cells that has wasteful material, that oxygen is inflammable. It's combustible. So it's like an explosion that takes place inside of you. And that's why when you sweat and you got all of this stuff coming out of you, it's because you literally are on fire. That's what it is. You literally are on fire. So if we take that same understanding of the natural principle of the blood and then think of how Peter describes the precious, the precious blood of Jesus, then you realize quickly that the blood of Jesus is the life of the church. That if we teach on the blood, help people to understand the power of the blood, the purpose of the blood, you'll have livelier people in the church that walk with God because you'll have people that are indebted to Christ for their redemption. I think it was the Methodist church back in the 40s that made the decision at that time. They've since reversed it, but they made the decision at that time to take out all of the hymns from their hymnal that dealt with the blood. Because the leadership said, we don't want to have to sing something that makes us look like we're singing a bloody religion. Well, it is a bloody religion. Everything about this is bloody. Christ climbed up on that cross. There's nothing about that that's supposed to be easing and comforting to the mind. It's supposed to evoke inside of us strong emotions because of how he died. And when we take the time to sing a song like, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We're reminding ourselves over and over again about the power of that blood. Yeah. This isn't something where we're trying to ease the minds of sinful, carnal people so that their minds are not disturbed by language that they don't like. The truth of God's word has to be proclaimed. So the, the blood in the church, it produces life. There's no doubt about it. And when the spirit of God is at work in the church of Jesus Christ and he is functioning in the body, he's dealing with each, and in, each individual member. All of us are different. All of us have different gifts. All of us have different talents. All of us have different callings. But the blood is what makes it possible for you to do what God wants you to do. Yeah. Now the natural blood in your body, it removes impurities. So as it says here, the life of the flesh is in the blood. It removes impurities. So it takes excremental material takes it to the proper channels of elimination. And without the blood, there can be no removal of those impurities. And if they're not removed, you'll die. When Tiff and I first got married, I had a cousin who was in the hospital dying of cancer. And so we went to see him, and it was the last time that I saw him. I walked into that intensive care unit, had a blanket over him and everything, the older cousin of mine, and, and it looked like he was pregnant. Looked like he was pregnant. Just had a big, super huge tumor there in his belly. And, and I walked in. And of course, he's on enough drugs to where, you know, he doesn't feel a whole lot what's going on. But, you know, he's in and out. And, and I'm talking with him. And, you know, you got one shot at talking to your cousin about, about the king. I hadn't seen him in years. I, I think the last time I saw him, I was in the Marine Corps stationed on Okinawa, Japan. He was in the Air Force. He came... Uh, TDY from mainland Japan was there on that island, found out I was there. He hadn't seen me since I probably was 11 or 12. He didn't even know I'd become a Christian and a preacher. So he came to my barracks and he said to the first sergeant or somebody that was there, I'm, I'm looking for I'm looking for Lance Corporal Daryl Sutton. They said, Daryl Sutton said, the preacher. 
He said, oh, my cousin not no preacher. He turned and walked off the base and went back home and then finally called back and realized, no, you, you haven't seen Daryl in a while. Daryl is a preacher. And, and, and I hadn't seen him. So now I'm seeing him again, and he's in this bed died. But see, that body can no longer remove those impurities from the body. The blood is incapable of, of doing that. And, and in a church, if, if the blood is applied properly through the teaching, through the preaching, it'll work on unforgiveness. It'll work on bitterness. People who don't get along in church will learn to get along if people preach on the blood. But if somebody's afraid of some matriarch or some patriarch or somebody that gives a whole lot of money or some big family or some this or that, and people are intimidated by that, then preachers and Sunday school teachers and other people won't take the time to minister on it because they're worried about how angry people will get. But as a pastor, pastors shouldn't spend their time working on symptoms. They ought to work on causes. Rather than standing at a tree and just lopping off the branches, I mean, dig at the roots and, and uproot the whole thing, you know? If, if people aren't tithing or people aren't praying or people aren't walking in love, you don't just have to preach on those things. Dig around the, to work on the things that produce all of that. Selfishness, self-righteousness, self-centeredness. And then you work on that, then all this other stuff will start, start falling into line. So the removal of impurities are important. How many times have people taken communion in church and everybody shared at the communion when there were people in the church that didn't even like each other and weren't even speaking with one another? Wickedness. See, here's one person on one side of the church, another person on another side of the church. They hadn't spoken to each other in probably six months to two years, but every week people are reaching for the communion stuff. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we should examine ourselves lest we be judged. And he said, because we don't, for this reason, people are sick, people are weak, and people die. That's what Paul says. And then we're trying to figure out, well, I, I can't understand why so-and-so just always infirmed, and I don't know why so-and-so died. And then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we should not partake of communion in an unworthy fashion. So uh, it's good to fix things so that they're right, you know. You know uh, Tiffany was teasing the other day because when Tiffany knows I will not start a service if her and I have been arguing and not in agreement. I mean, I, I, I just, the service would just have to start a minute or two late. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to fix all of that. I cannot, I cannot start a service and, and she and I are at odds with one another. So over in Red Cloud, in the early years, the way the sanctuary is, you know, you got the outer aisles and then you got the center aisle. And so Tiff, if, if we had had a disagreement or something, and she knows 10.30 a.m., I'm right on the dot, I start immediately, 10.30. So at about 10.20, I'm trying to get to Tiffany in the sanctuary so we can have a talk or I can hug her or something like that. And she looks and she's having a conversation with people. She sees me coming. So as I'm walking around the sanctuary, she's going around the other side. <laughs> and, so, and so we're just playing this little game, you know. I'm trying to trap her and I'm trying to get to where she is. And she's just looking at me and jumping around here and going in this direction. But eventually we always get her all fixed up, you know. Unity is a powerful thing. It is. It's a powerful thing. Okay. It helps remove the impurities, but let me give you another illustration to go with that. There was down in, in Texas a, a church that did outreaches into the red light district, and they would lead a lot of drunkards and prostitutes to the Lord. And then they'd bring them to church and bathe them, get them cleaned up, give them a new set of clothing, and feed them real well, and then sometimes even help them with a uh, job, some kind of employment. Well, there was a family in the church that had been in the ranching business for a lot of generations, owned a lot of, a lot of livestock and owned a lot of property. And they had a son in that church 
who was faithful and loved God. Well, you know, what do you think happened? The, the unthinkable happened. He fell in love with one of those girls that was saved off the streets. And they announced that they were engaged, wanted to get married. So he told his mom and dad, and his mom and dad made it very plain to him, said, look, uh, we, we think that's fine that she's saved and you guys are getting along and you like her, she likes you, but uh, you, you can't marry her. We're just two different kinds of people. You know, which, you know, they they come wealthy family. They didn't raise their kid to to end up uh, united in marriage to somebody who probably been with more men than they were in the church. They just they weren't thinking like that, and they didn't want to see that happen. Well, it got so bad that in the church, it just divided the church right down the middle. Now nobody left the church, but it certainly split the church. And these folks decided to have, if you can believe it, a church trial. I mean, they, they brought all the congregation, the membership together, and they want to discuss whether or not this young man and this young woman can get married. So the young man, he was out on the other side of the road just watching all these cars roll in, and he waited for everybody to get in, get seated, start the proceedings. And then he came in through the back door, walked to the front, stood in front of the congregation. He said, I want all of you to know you can settle on anything that you want to settle on. We're getting married. And he said, and I also want you to know it's not my girl. I'll just call her Susie. He said, it's not my Susie that's on trial today. He said, it's the blood of Jesus that's on trial. Because he said, if my Susie isn't clean then none of you in here are clean. See, we have a tendency to think that, that we, we, we're from England somewhere or, or in Russia, and we got all these different classes, and you got the elite people, and you got all of this. But folks, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It doesn't tilt in the direction of anybody that's wealthy or poor or fat or skinny or from a small family, no family, big family. All of us are the same. And that is something that everybody needs to know when we're dealing with the body of Christ. So when the blood is taught and people learn about it, then they realize, who am I to walk around here thinking I'm better than so-and-so? Because but for the grace of God, there go I. See? Let's finish up. So in verse 11 of chapter 17, he says, it'll make an atonement for your souls. It's the blood that makes atonement for your souls. Uh, we have been using the blood as an illustration, naturally, of what God does spiritually in the church. The, the blood helps fight off afflictions. You know, if you have a fever, you, you don't feel well, but that fever, of course, lets you know that your body is trying to fight off some foreign element. And this is why when you don't feel good and you go to the doctor, you know the first thing the doctor wants to do is take blood. I think some of them are vampires. As many vials of blood they want to take when I go in there. I don't like that, you know. But, yeah, they, they want to take blood because in that blood they can, see, they can see if your cholesterol is high. They can see if you've got some kind of deficiencies when it comes to vitamins. They can look into that blood. They can tell you just about anything that you need to know and what they need to know is discoverable in that blood. Yeah. So the, the fever then is letting you know something's fighting. Well, the, the body, of course, the blood regulates the bodily systems. So this is why you write it about 90 8.6 degrees with your temperature if you're healthy, somewhere right around there is where it's supposed to be. Yeah. But I'll tell you a story. When, when I used to be stationed on the island of Okinawa, February 1989, I was coming back from Japan. I had just spent one year over there in Japan. I left Japan. It was 123 degrees. That's pretty hot, folks. Yeah. When I lived in Saudi Arabia, right, right after the first Gulf War, it would get to over 130 degrees. The Marines and I would go out and crack an egg on the blacktop just to watch it sizzle. You know, just to watch it sizzle on that, on that blacktop. Well, I left February 89. It was over 100 degrees. 
I come back to Cleveland, Ohio, get off of that airplane at Hopkins International Airport, step outside the airport, and my mom's there to pick me up. It's five below zero. 24-hour trip, 100 degrees, folks. But you know what? My body temperature never changed. Yep, never changed. Geography never affected it. So when we think about the blood of Jesus and we think about the power of God, it doesn't matter what happens in the church, what storm may come, what difficulty may come, the ups and the downs. If people live for God the way they're supposed to be living, then the Spirit of God will keep everything regulated. Nobody has to backslide. Why do people backslide? Because they decide they don't want to forgive. They get angry at God. They pray and ask God to heal a loved one. A loved one passes away, so they get frustrated and mad at God, and they just decide, I'm not going back to church. As if because you stop going to church, that's going to hurt God and keep God from being God. All right. Throwing tantrums don't change the, doesn't change the nature of God at all. At all. So his blood applied in this body makes the difference. You cut yourself, that blood will start to clot. Pretty soon you'll have a scab. This is why I can't understand why anybody doesn't believe in divine healing. God put it in your natural body to heal. It's in your natural body to heal. And it means things are supposed to regenerate where it's possible for them to regenerate. And then somebody comes along and says they don't believe that God does miracles today. I just look at him and laugh. What kind of world do you live in and what kind of God do you serve? They asked Billy Graham one time. They said, Mr. Graham, do you believe that God can heal today? Do you think God can take somebody who doesn't have a hand at the end of their arm? Do you think God could, could heal that? God, and, and Mr. Graham said in an interview, he said, there's DNA in that body. And he said, that DNA in that body told that body when it was little and in that mama's womb to put that hand on that arm. And he said, that DNA is still in that body waiting on somebody greater than it to tell it to put it back on there. So Don't tell me God can't do something supernatural. He's bigger than you. He's bigger than me. He's bigger than our conception. And just because some some preacher or somebody doesn't want you to believe in the power of God. Don't you go down that road. You hold to what the book says. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Oh, folks, I'm telling you, it's a great day to be alive. Oh, my goodness, I'm telling you. Nothing else I'd rather do than read this book and talk about this book. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful today that you have been kind enough to open our eyes again and let us come into fellowship. A lot of places we could be on a Tuesday night, but we've chosen, Lord, to come here into fellowship with one another. So I pray, God, that what you have given us to discuss tonight would be upon our heart throughout this week. Let it, let it be something that turns on our insides and produces health and blessing for us. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen, Amen. amen.